Our scripture reading for today is Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as, they, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one like you. Lord, we just ask that you would anoint Brent at this time. Lord, just speak through him. Um, Let us see these words in a different way today, Lord, and just... um, move in the way that we've never seen, Lord. We just love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for everything you do for us. Amen. All right, good morning. How are we? Good? It's good to see everybody on this Palm Sunday, as has been alluded to already. It's a, it's an honor for me to be able to, to stand here and share with you guys this morning. It's also an honor for me to uh, serve Pastor Rick in allowing him to go and have some time with his family uh, away for a little while, which he doesn't get to do all that often. Um, I'm sure most of you know how much and how hard he works in serving this congregation, so it's, uh, I'm glad for him to be able to get away with the family for a little while. Um, I want to begin this morning by talking about coronations, all right, coronations. Most of us probably don't really understand or know a whole lot about coronations. It's not something that's a part of our American uh, mentality and our American way of doing things. But um, if you have two daughters, like I do, then you probably know something about coronations because you have seen Disney's Frozen. Okay? So you, if you've seen that movie, you are well aware of what a coronation is in the fact that Elsa comes of age, and she becomes the queen. She gets installed as the queen. Her coronation ceremony is a big part of that movie and all of Disney's cinematic genius. Um, but seriously, a coronation ceremony is a, uh, is a ceremony that acknowledges the sovereign power and the rights of a king or a queen, of a monarch, okay? The ceremony would be highly attended. There would be tons of people there, uh, not just the folks of that nation, that is actually doing the coronation or that is installing the monarch, but the surrounding nations 
would come as well, most of the time, if they're friends. Usually not foes, but they would come. It would be a huge amount of people there um, to witness and be a part of the new uh, king or queen being installed as that monarch. Um, it, they would be the center of attention. Whoever that person is, they, everything was revolving around them, what they're doing, all that kind of stuff. The ceremony would typically include a variety of rituals and customs that, uh, that signify this installment of this new monarch, things like special vows, they might say, or take uh, acts of homage by the subjects, you know, the people that they're going to be ruling over, that kind of stuff. Presentation of regalia, which would be like robes and scepters and those kind of things. So all that stuff. And then ultimately, kind of the, the crowning moment, so to speak, of the ceremony is the crowning of the king or queen. The placing of the crown on their head. That's like the final thing that says, this is our new king or this is our new queen. So it all culminates with, with that part of the ceremony. So I wanted to start with that because this is Palm Sunday, okay? And this begins, this day begins the coronation of Jesus, it begins his installment as God's king. But his coronation isn't quite like that. His coronation begins with his entrance into Jerusalem. That's what we're going to look at today. There's a pretty large crowd coming with him. Okay, And there's a reason for that crowd. There's a reason for this huge number of people. But it's not because they're there to honor him as the new king, okay? They haven't got gathered to honor him. There's another reason for their being there, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Jesus does end up being the center of attention. He ends up being the very center of attention, but he ends up there all alone. He's there by himself, betrayed by one of his disciples. The rest of the disciples scatter. They're just scared. We only see them kind of in the margins, so to speak. They're not kind of in the middle of the story. They're just kind of on the outside edges. We see them out there for a while. Instead of what we would consider this beautiful ceremony to honor him, he's forced through an illegal trial in the cover of darkness by the religious leaders of the time. They make all these false accusations about him, just trying to find something against him. Because they just want him gone. They don't like him. They want him out of the picture. He's causing problems for them. Then when there's no more they can do, when there's no more damage that these religious leaders can do, then they pass him over to the Romans, who are the ruling authority at the time. They're the ones that are in charge, more or less, of the whole area, Judea, Israel, the whole area. Now, the Romans know who their king is. They know exactly who their king is. And it ain't Jesus. Okay? So they're not going to treat him with any kind of respect whatsoever. So they're not going to be celebrating him in the least. They do end up putting a purple robe on him, mocking him. That's all they're doing is just mocking him, not honoring him. Instead of homage being paid to him, he gets slapped, spit on, beaten scourged, I think is the word that the scriptures use. He's beaten so badly 
that I would say, I've said this before to folks, if any other human being had received the beating that Jesus received, they would have died in that moment. Had he not been fully God in the flesh, he would not have survived that. That's the beating that he took. So much so, Scripture says that he could not be even recognized as a human. That was the beating that he received. He does end up getting a crown, but it's not a gold crown with jewels encrusted on it. It's a crown of thorns, long, hard, sharp thorns. It gets placed on his head, and from what I understand, beaten onto his skull with a rod. That's his crowning moment. Instead of a throne, he gets a cross. He's forced to carry this cross to a place called Golgotha, place of a skull, Calvary, as we might know it. He's stripped completely naked, only the crown on his head, nailed to that cross, lifted up between two thieves like a common criminal just to be made an example of with a sign that the Romans put over his head says this is the king of the Jews saying this is what we think of your king that was Jesus's coronation and he willingly willingly of his own volition hangs there on that cross and dies the most crucial crude horrible wretched excruciating death that a human could die. That was his coronation as God's king. But it does not end there. Because Sunday is coming, y'all. Okay? Sunday is coming. I got emotional talking about that. I didn't expect to, but I did. Some of y'all are emotional. Don't worry. There is good news. Okay? I don't want to start that way. So... As horrible and as ugly as that all is and as disturbing as it is to imagine, know this, it did not catch Jesus off guard at all. Okay? None of that took him by surprise. Zero. None of it. He knew it was the plan all along. He knew what was coming. He knew what was happening. Okay? Because not only is, God, is Jesus God's king, he is God's perfect sacrifice. He is God's perfect sacrifice for us, for the sins of the world. Okay? He was the only one that could fulfill God's righteous requirement for a truly holy, spotless, perfect, sinless sacrifice in order to completely and totally atone for the sins of the entire world, past, present, future. Okay? He's the only one that could do that. He was the final sacrifice once for all. So his coronation as the king who was sacrificed for his own people is what made the way for us to have peace with God. Okay? All that that he endured, he endured it out of obedience to the Father for us, for his subjects, for his people. 
We'll see more of this coronation on Thursday evening. And then, like I said, we'll get to celebrate the completion of it. Okay? Happy smiles. This is what we need. We'll get to complete or celebrate the completion of it at his resurrection on Sunday. But what I want to do today, I want to just look at how this coronation begins. Okay? So we're going to look at his entrance into Jerusalem. I realize we could probably just stop right there, but I got a whole lot of stuff prepared. So y'all got to... Y'all got to sit and listen to me. (laughs) So let's start with verse 28 with the passage that Krista just read for us a few minutes ago. So verse 28 says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Okay, so Jesus has two reasons for going to Jerusalem at this time. Number one is it's Passover. Okay, so it's Passover time. Passover is a week-long celebration that commemorates and celebrates the exodus, God freeing the Jews from slavery in Egypt. If you have much of a church background, you're very well aware of that, Moses and all that good stuff. And there was a a lot that would happen during this week, but it all culminated, the whole Passover week culminated with the sacrificial lamb. Okay, that's what it all kind of pointed to. Everything was centered around that whole thing. And that was the high point of the celebration because that was the high point of the Exodus story, okay? When the 10th plague was put down by God and said, look, if y'all, Pharaoh, if you don't let the people go, then I'm going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, okay? So that's the 10th plague. He's had it. He's done. He's up to here. I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. So Pharaoh didn't let the people go. The 10th plague has to be put down. So In doing that, God says, I'm going to protect my people. I'm going to protect them from this plague. For them to do that, he had some very specific instructions for them to do involving a male lamb, okay, a male lamb that was without blemish, all right? They had certain things they had to do, certain ways to prepare it, all that kind of stuff. Long story short, without too much information or without going into too much detail, they would sacrifice this lamb. They would kill this lamb, and they would take the blood of the lamb. They would put it on the lintel of the door and on the doorpost. That way, when the Lord went through that town that night or whenever it was, that he would see the blood and know that that family was protected, that their firstborn would not be killed as a part of this 10th plague. So the Lord would pass over that house. That's the point. That's the whole thing behind the whole idea of Passover. So that's the first reason for Jesus being in Jerusalem is for Passover, okay? And you can read all about that story in Exodus chapter 12 if you want to go home and read that as far as what the Passover was. So that's the first reason he's there. The second reason, the second reason that Jesus is going to Jerusalem is because of Passover, okay? It's because of Passover, but not just to participate as a Jew in this festival, but, but because it was time for him to become the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. It was time for that to happen. Because the sacrificial lamb in the Exodus story that the people are celebrating in this festival points to Jesus. It points to Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice for the people. So Jesus is God's perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And that's ultimately why he came, and he knew it was time for him to be that now. 
And like I said just a minute ago, he knew all this was coming. This did not shock him in the least. It did not catch him off guard. It did not surprise him. Okay? Just on their journey to Jerusalem, Jesus has told the disciples three different times what's going to happen. Okay? That this is going to happen to him. He tells his disciples this is going to happen. The first one is in Luke chapter 9 and verse 21 and 22. Says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. So he's talking to his disciples. He says, Don't say this to anybody else, guys, but the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's one time. Later on, they're they're still going on the on their way to Jerusalem. Same chapter, Luke chapter 9, verses 43 and 44. He says this. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. He had just done something amazing, okay? And everybody is like blown away by what, he, what they just saw. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's number two. Number three, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 and 33, through 33. And taking the twelve, he said to them, and listen to the detail in what he says here. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, that's the scourging that he took, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He was not surprised about what was coming. He knew exactly what he was heading into. He knew exactly. It had been the plan from the very beginning. Scripture says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, this was the plan. Okay? So he knew what was going on. But there's more preparation to get done, to be done as he's going, as he's going to Jerusalem. Because, you see, Jesus needs a ride. He needs a ride to get into town. Okay? So as they're moving towards Jerusalem, they get to Bethphage, Bethphage, however you say that place, and Bethany, Bethany we can say, which are about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And this is the last stop for Jesus as he's going into Jerusalem. He, this is the last stop before he gets into the city. Bethany is familiar to us. Bethany's familiar to him. He had been there many times because some of his friends lived there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We probably know them because Lazarus died and Jesus raised him from the dead. So we know that he knows Bethany, okay? So he's there. He's coming up to Bethany. And in verses 30 and 31 of Luke chapter 19, we see that as he is approaching the village, he tells two of his disciples to go in. They're going to find an unbroken, unridden colt. That's pretty specific. Okay? He wants them to untie it and bring it to him. And if anyone asks him what they're doing, just say, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Okay? Makes sense. Right? Doesn't it? So first of all, I look at this scene... I look at this scene, and I look at it, and I see just the deity of Jesus just pouring out of it, okay? Just in his foreknowledge, in his knowing, in his understanding of what's 
going on here. The fact that he is God in the flesh, the fact that he is the sovereign king, and he has everything under control. Not only does he know what's coming, he's orchestrating events to get him there. Okay? That's the kind of king that this is that is going to be coronated. So he has everything under control. He's a completely aware of all the, even the smallest little details. Like nothing has gone unthought of. Like he's not like, ah, I left my phone at home. None, none of that happens. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. Okay, so he even knows that there's going to be this unbroken, unridden cult in this town waiting for him. I mean, it's just pretty amazing to me. And this and get this, it's an unbroken colt. Has anybody ever seen an unbroken colt, a, a horse that's not broken, and seen somebody try to get on that animal? It not, doesn't go well. It, it just does not go well typically. But this one is going to just calmly carry, he's not going to buck, he's not going to do it, he's going to calmly carry his king into the town. He's in control. That's all I'm trying to say. So verse 32 says that they went and they found it just like he said they would. He, he found, they found it exactly like he said they would. So why don't, I don't, let's talk about this donkey. Let's talk about this colt, okay? My ESV study Bible, and if you have one, you can read this as well, tells me that this colt or a colt like this one, one that has never been sat on, implies a purity that destines an animal for a sacred task. This animal was put there for the purpose of carrying the king into Jerusalem. There is no more sacred task than for that cult to carry its creator, the one that made it, into the king, the ki his kingdom. I mean, he's carrying the king of kings. Again, again, this is just God doing all this stuff, putting all these things together. It was like this animal was put there, prepared for this very moment. Not only that, but listen to this. Luke doesn't mention this, but Matthew does, that it's a donkey. Like, specifically, it's a donkey's colt. Luke doesn't say that. Some of the others do. Matthew and John both do. So why a donkey? I mean, why does it matter? Why, why is it specifically a donkey? Well, number one is to fulfill prophecy. A prophecy from Zechariah, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Zechariah 9.9, 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. That's Jesus. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was written hundreds of years before this event that we're talking about today. Hundreds of years and it came true with those disciples being obedient, doing what they're supposed to do. We'll get to that in a second, too. So it's a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. That's why it's a donkey. The donkey is a symbol of humility. And him, to me, him riding into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, it reminds me of his birth. So it's a humble entrance going into Jerusalem. It was a humble entrance for him into the world. I mean, I picture very pregnant Mary, okay, very pregnant Mary, hundreds of miles, however far they had to go, long ways. Pregnant, riding this donkey, going into Jerusalem. Only to find that there ain't nowhere for them to go. So Jesus, king of all creation, 
has to be born in a stable and laid in a feed trough. That's the king's entrance into the world. That's what his entrance into the world looked like. That's not how we would picture a king coming into the world, right? I mean, that's usually in a palace, like big deal, lots of celebration. The king is born. No, his was very, very humble. His exit from the world, just as humble and way more gruesome. Not typical of a king, right? But Jesus is not your ordinary king either. And then there's the fact that there is no questioning from either party, from the disciples nor the owners of this cult. Neither one of them, except for the owner saying what Jesus said they were going to say. So the disciples don't argue at all. They don't question. They just go. They say, okay. They go find it exactly how Jesus said. The owners of the cult, all they do is say, hey, what are you doing? Which is to be expected. I mean, any of us would do the same thing, right? If somebody came to our house and started taking something that was ours, they say, hey, what are you doing? And then when they said, the Lord needs it, I'm going to say, no. <laughs> and they're probably going to be met with a loaded pistol. You know, it's, no, that, that, it's, that's just not normal. It's just not normal for that to happen that way. But what if they said, well, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not going to go there. Um, the reason I think all this is happening, I think this is just all a very supernatural event. It's just a very supernatural event. None of it makes sense. It just, to our brains, it just doesn't make sense. It could only be explained as of God. It could only be something that God is doing because it's not an ordinary situation. It just, it just has all the air marks of God orchestrating and doing this thing in his own way. Whether it makes sense to us or not, it's him doing it. But what about us? There's two people in that situation, the disciples and the owners of that cult. What about us? How are we when it comes to Jesus telling us to do something? Do we trust him enough to just do what he says? Is his telling us to do it enough for us to just be obedient? And hopefully find it as he says we will find it. And do we do just what he says to do? The question there is, is he really the Lord of our lives? That's the, that's the real question. Lord being master, being the one that's in control of your life. Knowing what we know about Jesus, however much or however little that may be, because I know we have a, a huge crowd in here, everybody in different levels and different understandings. So no matter how much you know, little or small, if you were to put yourself in these disciples' shoes or in the owners of this cult's shoes, how would you have responded? Would you have pushed back? Would you have questioned it? Or would you have just responded to him as the Lord and done what he asked of you? I mean, that's the, that's the ultimate question there in that scenario. And I know we can't know everything, we can't understand everything, but how obedient are we to the things we do understand? The things that we do grasp, the things that we do read and say, that makes perfect sense. How do we do that? Do we do that? Do we even strive to do that? Just a little something to, uh, to think about there. So the two disciples, they went, they got this colt for Jesus 
just like he asked them to. They brought it back to him. Now what? Well, now we begin to see the king being acknowledged. We get to see some things that they're actually acknowledging him as the king. Okay? The disciples start to praise the king here. So verses 35 and 36 say that they threw their cloaks on the colt, like a makeshift saddle. I mean, this was an unbroken colt. There's no reason for it to have a saddle on it, right? So they makeshift a saddle. They put their cloaks on it. And then as he's walking, they start spreading their cloaks out on the road so for the colt to walk on. This was an act of homage being shown to Jesus by the people. And they don't do that for just anybody. That act of taking their outer cloak off and laying it down is something you would do for a king. There's mention in the Old Testament about them doing that for different kings as they entered the city. It also is an act of humility. It's an act of saying, I'm placing myself before you. I surrender myself to you. Rather than them laying themselves down, they can't do that. They get trampled on. So it's just a way of symbolically saying, we acknowledge you as the king. And then in verse 37, verse 37, it says that they begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here, what they're doing is they're quoting scripture. They're literally quoting scripture here. The disciples are quoting um, Psalm 118 verse 26, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is just another way of them acknowledging him as the king. Okay, They may not fully understand it, and I don't think all of them do. We'll get to that in a second. But this is what they're doing. They're acknowledging Jesus as the king. So let me try to describe this scenario to you. Jesus had a pretty big crowd following him at this point. Okay, there's a pretty good amount of people following him. I don't know how many it is, but it's it's more than just the 12. Okay? And we can you can go back and start at verse or chapter 9 verse 51. That's when he Bible says that he turned his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem. From that point on, you read and there's always a crowd with him somehow. It, it mentions this, this crowd, his disciples and all these other people. So it's more than just him and his disciples. There are a bunch of people with Jesus. And not only that, but it's the beginning of Passover week, like I said earlier. So that means that not only is Jesus and these people that are with him going to Jerusalem, everybody is going to Jerusalem. I mean, I think Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem would swell like 10 times during Passover week. So if there was 30,000 people that lived there, it would be like 300,000 during this week. So it swelled like beyond capacity. So there are a bunch of people headed to Jerusalem, and most of them are traveling the same road that Jesus is traveling, okay? So there's a bunch of people already there. There's a bunch of people still coming. It's a huge amount of people making their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So it would be very easy for anybody who is around and experiencing all this to get wrapped up in a situation like this. They just get kind of, you just get kind of sucked in, right? You, you familiar with what I'm talking about? You just get around some stuff and stuff's happening and you just kind of get sucked into it. I can see how that would happen in this situation. So here they are. They've crested the Mount of Olives. Okay, so the Mount of Olives is kind of above Jerusalem a little bit. You crest that and you see the city. You, just, you can see it out in front of you. 
Jesus is riding this colt, fulfilling this prophecy that regards him as being the promised Messiah and the king. The disciples and these other people, they're laying their cloaks out for this colt to walk on. They begin to sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then everybody around starts falling in. I mean, can you just picture that happening? You know, just the people that are, they just get drawn into the situation. They get caught up in the moment. And verse 37, I think, gives us a little glimpse into the heart. And it, it might sound weird once I read it, but gives us a little glimpse into the heart of why I believe the people that are joining in this worship and praise are doing what they're doing. Okay? The verse says that the whole multitude of his disciples, so everybody that was around him, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. For all the mighty works they had seen. Not because they really believed Jesus to be who he was. Not because they understood who he was. Because what they had seen him do. Okay? Because of what they had seen him do. All in all, they were starstruck. They're starstruck by Jesus. They've heard these stories. He's been doing this stuff, living in, in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, Galilee, the whole area of Israel, Judea, that whole area, and doing all these different things, and people are hearing about it. And now they're with him. Like, they're seeing some of these things happen. They were starstruck by Jesus. They were amazed at the things that they had seen and that they had heard of him doing. And they were some amazing things, all right? They were some very amazing things for sure. Let's just look at a few. Just the things that he's done on this journey from the time he set his face to go to Jerusalem to now. And these are just a small handful. So Luke chapter 11, verse 14, he casts out a demon from a man. Blows everybody's mind. Luke 13, 10 to 17, he heals a woman with a disabling spirit. She's all hunched over. She can't hardly move. Had it all her life. He heals her. Done. She's upright. She's walking around doing everything like she normally does. Luke 14, 1 through 6, he healed a man on the Sabbath. That was not good. It was good, but it wasn't good to the Pharisees. They didn't like that at all. Showing him again to be king of the Sabbath. He'd healed a man on the Sabbath day. In Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19, he healed 10 lepers at once. 10 lepers came to him, and he healed every one of them at one time. Just, you're clean. One of them came back and thanked him. Luke chapter 18, 34, 35 to 43, excuse me, he made a blind man see. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure at some point along this same journey is when Lazarus was raised from the dead too. So they have seen and they have heard about that. But those are the ones just, those are just the ones recorded in Luke's gospel. And they're just the ones on this short journey, not to mention all the other stuff that he had done. So I can see how virtually anybody could get wrapped up in a moment like this and being starstruck in that moment. But being starstruck is fleeting. It's fleeting at best. It doesn't last. It's not something that you're going to be able to ground yourself in. It's not sustainable. It'll have you looking for the next big thing. You know, what's he going to do next? That's what you're looking for. Not, man, this is... God in the flesh. They're just looking for the next big thing. And really what they were looking for, I think, is for him to be this political power that's going to go into Jerusalem and lay waste to the Romans and be this king and God's kingdom be here on earth, which is not at all what 
he was coming to do. Now, hear me when I say this. What this crowd of people is doing is absolutely 100% correct and spot on. Okay? Them laying their cloaks out, that's right. Them saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that is 100% right. There is, that is absolutely the right thing for every one of us to do. Okay? There is no doubt about that. And I think that's part of the reason why Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't stop them. He lets them do that. He lets them continue on doing that. And we'll talk about that more in a minute too. But even though they're saying these things, and even though what they're doing is correct, their being starstruck is a problem. It is a problem. And the reason I think that is is because I don't believe they were all true believers. I think there were some that just, again, got caught up in the moment. Some are. Some are believers, without a doubt. Some are not. Long story short, they're a fickle group. They're a fickle group of people. Their worship is fickle. Their praise is fickle. And I say that because anybody can do and say the right things for a season. You can do it for a little bit. You know, you can, you can get caught up in a moment and do something. That, that can happen. But it's not sustainable. Okay, it's like you're doing it because everybody else is doing it. We all can get sucked into that. You know, it, it happens. It's the not understanding why that's the problem. It's the not understanding why you're doing what you're doing is the problem. There's no foundation there. There's nothing to stand on. There's nothing to brace yourself on. You can be easily swayed when it's just being starstruck. So their loyalty and their comments and what they were doing didn't really lie with who Jesus really was, okay? And here's why we know that. Here's why I say that we know that. Because today, today they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In just a few days, they're going to be shouting, crucify him. The same people that are on this road, the same ones who are praising him as the king, are going to be shouting for his death in just two or three days. They're fickle. They are a fickle people. It's the same crowd making both declarations. They both get wrapped up in the moment, I think, too. One of them in the moment of praise and one of them in the moment of cursing. So my question is this, are we really any different than they are? Are we really any different than those folks? I know I can be just as fickle and I probably speak for everybody in here if we're honest our loyalty to Jesus can come and go just as quickly depending on scenarios situations what we're dealing with all that kind of stuff we can flip back and forth just as much we can be all about Jesus and worshiping at church on Sunday but then look like someone who doesn't even know God the rest of the week it can happen. It can happen to any one of us. We can be all spiritual and godly when, when we're talking to certain people, and then we can turn around and talk to some other people, and they would not know that we knew God in the least. May we repent of that, and may we truly turn our hearts to Jesus at all times. 
acknowledging him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in every way and in every aspect of our lives. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, may we look the same at church on Sunday that we do the rest of the week. Because we owe literally everything to him. So I pray that our relationship with Jesus will not be fickle, but it would be genuine and real because of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Now, we said a minute ago that the worship and praise of these people um, was correct. It's right. It's good. It's what they were supposed to do. But the Pharisees who were in the crowd did not think so. They did not like it. They, they had been adamantly against Jesus from the very beginning. Okay? They don't like it at all. They thought that the only one who should receive praise like that was God himself. And by Jesus accepting that praise, he was claiming to be God, which he was, which is right, which is good, which made it right for them to do what they were doing. The Pharisees did not think so. They did not. They thought he was being completely blasphemous, and he demanded, and they demanded that Jesus rebuke his disciples in verse 39. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, tell them to stop. They are not supposed to be doing this. Tell them to stop. And here's the thing. Ordinarily, Jesus would. Up until this moment, he has never allowed people to do that for him, to him, about him in his life. He has not allowed it the first time. Anytime somebody would try to praise him for a miracle that he had done, he would say, he would, oftentimes he would say, hey, I'm doing this and I've healed you. Don't tell anybody. Like, go do your thing. Granted, they couldn't stand it. They have to tell somebody, so they would. And if anybody tried to give him praise for something he had done, it would be in a big crowd, he would sneak out. Gone. And here's why. Because had he let it happen then, his time would have not come now. It would have incited fury in the Pharisees, and his time would not have been accomplished the way it was supposed to be. He knew when his time was. He knew when it was going to be appropriate for them to praise like they are, and he knew it was right. It's not that he was saying, I'm not God. He was just saying, it's not time yet. So you're saying you got to wait for the right moment. His time had not come because he knew the consequences if it started happening too soon. But now it is time. It is time for him to be acknowledged as the king. So that's why he was allowing it. And that's why he responds the way he, do, the way he does in verse 40. When he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This was his way of saying and his way of claiming that what they're saying is true, that it is right, that it is good, that, it, that they are doing what they are supposed to be doing. It's time for his coronation as the king. It's his way of saying that because he says if they stop doing it, creation is going to do it. Creation itself will burst forth with praise if God's created beings meant to do it, don't do it. So I asked this morning, how important is it for us to praise, worship, and acknowledge Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And I don't mean just here in this building. I don't mean when we're gathered together as a group of believers. I'm talking about in all of life. You know, how, how well do we speak of God? How well do we speak of Jesus when we're just out in our normal lives, when we're at work, when we're at play, when we're at the restaurant or wherever else, 
How, how much do we share? How much do we talk about who Jesus is? Where we go to school in all of our comings and goings, do people know that we are a follower of Jesus? Do they know? Are they aware of that? Are we pointing people to him? Because that's all these people were doing. They were praising him as the king, but it was pointing everybody around them to the king. It was saying, hey, this is the one. How well are we doing that ourselves? Or are we in danger of the stones crying out for us because we don't do it? Because if we refuse to acknowledge Jesus as our King and as our Lord, if we refuse to do it, these stones will cry out. So we said it matters as to why we should do these things. The heart, the, the why behind these disciples and what they were saying and those kind of things. That's important, right? So we're going to look at that now. We're going to look at the why for today's message. Why the time has come. Why the time has come for Jesus to be acknowledged as the king and why we should follow him as Lord. So these next couple of verses, Krista didn't read these earlier. But when I read these, I want us to hear and feel the weight of these last couple of verses. It's verses 41 and 42 of Luke chapter 19. And when he, that's Jesus, drew near and saw the city, so he's on his way down from the mount looking over the city. He wept over it. He wept over it. He should be rejoicing. The people are praising him as the king, but instead he weeps over it. And he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So just picture this in your mind. Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. The worship of his people are surrounding him. Okay? It's, it's happening. The people are praising him. He approaches the city. He sees it. And with all these people who are there for the Passover... It's full. Jerusalem is bursting with people. Okay? They're, it's bursting with people. And he weeps tears of mercy for that city, for those people that are in that city. Everybody. There's Romans in there. There's Jews in there. There's the Pharisees in there. Everybody. I mean, it is the nations are gathered in that place. And he weeps over it. Tears of mercy for them. His heart breaks for them because they have no clue what's about to happen. They do not know what is about to happen. What that city is getting ready to see and experience, they have no idea, but he does. He knows exactly what is about to happen. He is keenly aware of everything to the smallest detail of what's about to happen in that city. Because it was planned, and he was part of the planning from the very beginning. And now the time has come for him to be the king that makes peace. He, it's time for him to become the king that makes peace, real peace, and to make it available to anyone that would have it. Not just for a select few, not for just the good folks, to anyone. 
to anybody that would have it. So what is this peace? What is this peace he's talking about? He, he says that you don't even know. He said if you only knew the things that are going to happen to make for peace. What, what is this peace? Well, one, it's because we are at odds with God from our birth. From our very birth, we are at odds with God. Scripture says that we are enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says that we are enemies. For while we were still enemies, the only way that we can be reconciled, made right with God, is through the death of His Son. This peace is what God provides through His Son, Jesus. The things that make for peace are the beating and the false trial and the slapping and the spit and all the stuff that Jesus endures headed to the cross and then him hanging on that cross and dying on that cross. That's what brings us peace. That's what brings us peace. That's what brings us in right relationship with God because Jesus dies in our place. He takes on the sin of the world. He takes on the sin of the world in such a way that the Father cannot even look at him anymore. Jesus has never not been with the Father. And somehow, in, in their supernatural way, even though they are a complete triune God, somehow there's a separation between them on that cross that day. And he knows that's coming. He dreads that moment. But he says, I will endure it because it's the plan that we had and for the people. So the peace that Jesus offers is this peace between a holy and righteous God and a sinful and unrighteous mankind. It's his own sacrifice. The sacrifice of God's son that is a way to make peace for us. He knows it's coming. Jesus knows it. Nobody else does. And he knows that once that happens, very few are going to get it. They're just, they're not going to get it. They're going to refute it. They're going to do all these different things to try to come against it. So, oh, what Jesus would have to go through and endure, not for himself, not for his peace, not to make himself right with God. He's right with God, always has been, but to give us peace and to provide a way for us to be taken from enemies to friends of God. We owe everything to him. Everything. So the question then is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to us? Is he the king? Or is he just another man? Is he just another lunatic? Is he another fanatic? Or is he the king of all creation? Is he the king of kings and lord of lord? Who do you say he is? Do you know him? Or do you just know of him and I guess more importantly is does he know you that's the more important question does he know you he's ready he wants to know you he shows that through what he's going to endure as we see Thursday night Friday and then Sunday morning he wants to know you he wants to know all of us in a deep and personal and real way. He's our creator. He's the one that made us. He's the one that fashioned us in our mother's womb. He wants to know you. And it can happen. But he is not going to force it on you. 
He loves you too much to do that. He loves you enough to let you make your own decision. He will not force himself on us. The choice is ours. And my prayer and my hope this morning is that you know and you understand a little bit more about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And not just more about him, but how much he loves you. Let's pray. And the praise team will come and lead us in one last song. Lord God, what a beautiful and amazing story you have written to show just how much you do love us. I'm afraid that we can't even really comprehend it. It's, it's too great for us, Lord. So I just pray right now, I ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, open our very spirit, Lord, the very deepest, darkest part of who we are, where we're hiding all kind of garbage that nobody else may know about. Lord, I pray that you would just penetrate down deep into there, draw us to yourself. Lord, speak to us. Teach us how to repent. Teach us that that you love us no matter what. You already know. This passage we looked at today reminds us that you know everything. There's nothing hidden from you. Lord, you know it all together. There is no sin too great to keep us from you if we repent. You've paid for it. You've taken care of it. It's done. That's what you said on the cross. It is finished. Help us, Lord, just to embrace that, to to just hug that into our own spirit and our own hearts. And, Lord, I pray that we would not be a fickle people. Lord, help us to be strong and courageous. Lord, work in us in such a way that it's that we're just stoic for you, that we are unwavering. That, Lord, our love for you would be seen by everybody around us. That it would not be something that only a select few see. But, Lord, that everybody that's around us says, man, that, that dude, that lady, they love Jesus. Because, God, you, we owe it to you. We owe everything to you, Lord. We thank you for this triumphal entry. We thank you for, for you being the king. And it is in the precious and awesome, majestic name of Jesus we pray. Amen.